You may remember, now you can start. You may remember that we ended up last week, I had such a good time last week, we ended up last week saying, what are you doing to hold yourself in a place of compassion? Remember that? I said, uh, that was the most significant thing that any therapist, any spiritual director ever said to me about some 10 or 15 years ago, and I have taught it to therapists, spiritual directors since then, because it seems so, uh, not only it's, why don't you take care of yourself with you, you know, with compassion would be a good idea, but what are you doing to hold yourself in a place of compassion? Which means, A, uh, you are worthy of compassion, and I'm sure you know that, and I'm sort of assuming that you're already doing something to hold yourself in a place of compassion. So it's a, it's a sweeter thing than, than to say, what you know, just try to be compassionate. What are you doing? Because it's not that complicated to say, take care of yourself. I got off the phone with somebody this morning, and they said, take good care of yourself. That seems to be a very nice way, a salutation when you hang up the phone. So I was thinking about... Also, I, I met with a friend of mine yesterday morning for, for breakfast, and she, she now teaches courses. She's a tremendous teacher. I have tremendous respect for it, not talking bad, about um, teaches courses on self-compassion. So I think, wow. I, I said, what is new about that? Meta for self, is that not self-compassion when you're in pain about something or other? She said, well, yeah. Actually, it is, but people don't often think about it, so you have to practice it a little bit. But all right, because I was sure that the, uh, that the awareness of I'm in pain must work with oneself just as it does if you see somebody else in pain and you think to them, you know, you think either out loud, you say to them, may your suffering end soon, well, you think to yourself, may that person's suffering end soon. That when we teach Brahma Viharas, we teach metta is goodwill. And then we make these subcategories of when people are in pain, then you're not actually thinking goodwill. You're actually thinking, I recognize that you're in pain and suffering, so I, I'm sending you compassion. And if I come with goodwill over here and I see that somebody is actually uh, 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 thrilled because they're getting married this afternoon. Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. Because it's Purim or? Kind of full moon. It's a significant date and you just want to be married. Terrific. Uh, I was just thinking, you know, I'm sure it's great. It's wonderful. It's terrific. It is a full moon. The moon doesn't set. Till late, are you going to still have the moon up when you're? That'd be great. I was just thinking, it's a day of masquerades where people are often not doing what they're actually doing. So I hope that's you know, take that out of your mind. Okay. Then. Uh, so I think about that that uh, that it's it's sort of extra to say that meta in this situation is kind of is. Um, consolation is um, uh, compassion, and in this situation is um, oh enthusiasm or support or uh, a, a celebratory. It's all goodwill, and it's goodwill that changes uh, depending on the situation. We are moved by things, and we're thrilled by things. And when you hear people. When, when we were here together and you heard this difficulty here, um, I did not mention, I thought about it later, uh, my friends um, Miriam and uh, Margot uh, back in Philadelphia, whose son Arye is dying either today or tomorrow. And it's a terrible thing for them. And when you just heard that, when I just said that, didn't you feel... Uh, in your body, and you don't know Miriam or Margot or Arie, but you feel, uh, in your body. And when we say, I, what's your name? Susan. I mean, I, Susan is getting married tomorrow morning on full moon. Didn't you feel, uh? <laughs> you know, we, we are like that. We are, we're, we're mood machines. 
And we're mood machines with antennae. We pick up what other people's message is, and we delight or we um, console, even if we don't say anything. But I wanted to talk all about the permutations of um, compassion. And I happen to have a, a, a file that I found and duplicated on uh, particular expressions of compassionate heart. So I'm going to pass it out, and then we'll use it later today and tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Next week, if we don't finish with it. If, you, if we run out, share, because you're going to need a partner anyway later on. So let's do an experiment just to start. Because I want to do a little bit of, um, I want to do an experiment about uh, the idea of, uh, the idea of Purim, which we talked about before a little bit. Those of you who did not come in exactly in the beginning, tonight when the sun sets, it will be uh, the full moon in the month of Adar, which is the festival of Purim. There you go. Full moon in the month of Adar, which is a festival of Purim, which celebrates an event in Persia uh, in very far history where um, the bad guy gets shown to be the bad guy and executed, and the good guy who passes the information that that's a bad guy, gets elevated to prime minister. So that's basically the story. And when you hear the story read in communities all over the world today, people usually boo and make a, a noisemaker with a bad sound, which the noisemaker, by the way, is called the graga. So that's already a bad sound. You know, if you even say, I'm taking my graga with you, that's a bad sound. And it goes, this is a bad sound. And they say the name of the bad guy, Haman, everybody goes, and they say the name of the good guy, Mordecai, yay. But you're supposed to be so filled with celebratory joy, presumably from intoxicating yourself, either on joy or on intoxicants, that you get confused and you don't, you don't do the gaga at the right time, or you yay for that guy and you boo for the other guy. And the idea is that you blur the differences between your friends and your enemies. So on the one hand, blurring uh, discernment is not generally thought of as a wise uh, spiritual move. And I'm not going to suggest that it is. But somehow having a vantage point where you can look at your friends and your enemies and be able to say, all of these people are people who are just like they are because of whatever happened to them in their lives. That they are not more responsible for being bad guys than I am responsible for being good guys. You know, we talked a little bit next last week probably about the poems that say, I am the this and I am the that, I am the good guy and the bad guy. I actually have always taken a little bit of exception. Today I'm taking exception to everything. I'm gonna sound really terrible. <laughs> I have to back up from that, erase that. I didn't say that, but I did. You know, that I actually don't think, I think that there are limits to what I, Sylvia, could do with this body. That usually the idea is if you were upset enough, you could do heinous crimes. don't know. But it's, maybe, how do I know? I have never had that test. But I don't know. But I get it that if I had had another body born to other people in a human form, I might be a person who could do all those things depending on my neurology that I was born with, depending on how I was brought up, depending on the circumstances, if I weren't me. Years ago, I, uh, there was a great story that a man told me. Do I want to tell that story? It's a great story. It will put me off on my timing. <laughs> Let's see if I can do it well. I'm not going to do it if I can't do it well. Maybe I can. So 
So this is a story I tell you the story about the man, if you heard it, if you remember it, I won't tell it. It was a long, long time ago. I was teaching a meta retreat in um, Barry, Massachusetts. It's a long time ago, but more than a decade. And um, a man came on retreat, uh, as did 80 or 90 other people. And I saw him in an interview, on a one-to-one -one interview, uh, maybe two or three days into the retreat. It was a... a um, no, 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 actually. It was the end of a retreat, because it was a seven-day retreat, and my colleagues saw him on day two and day four. I saw him on day six. And he said, I've had a wild ride, you know. He said, uh, I, uh, I came here because I had this week off, and I noticed that IMS had a retreat this week, so I came, and I didn't know it was a meta retreat. So I probably wouldn't have come if I had known, but I came. And here I sat down, and the instructions are you start to say these uh, phrases of well-wishing to other people. And you start with your nearest and dearest the people you admire, the Buddha, your teachers, your parents, if you had a comfortable relationship, your best friends, your next to the best friends, people that you work with, people that you hardly know, your barber, your postmaster. And then in the end, you think about people that you've had difficulty with that frighten you when you think about them. He said, I didn't know anything about it. And I sat down and had the first instructions the first evening to really get us in the mood for making those wishes. And I, uh, I began to relax a little bit. And by the end of the evening, I felt so relaxed uh, that I accidentally let a door in my mind open that hadn't opened in three years, that I had had such a traumatic experience. I just put it in the back of my mind, and I didn't remember it. I just refused to think about it. And all of a sudden, that experience came back to me. And it flooded my mind and my body, and I started to shake all over the place. And I got really frightened because I thought, I'm here now for a week. I'm going to have to sit with this memory that has just suddenly come back in my mind. By the way, Sometimes people come on retreat and a couple of days or a week or two weeks into the retreat they have some childhood memory that they really thought they had forgotten and came back. His was an adult memory. I don't remember, it's three years, four years, five, but recent. He said, I said, my body started to shake. It was such a terrible ordeal. He said, but, you know, I was here already. So I managed to stay with it. And every time I sat down, I'd start to really try to keep my attention on what was going here. And that memory would come in my mind, and I, would, I couldn't even make any phrases. I would just calm myself down. I could say, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be happy. I'd try to do breath, and I'd calm myself down. And as the week went along, I got a little calmer and a little calmer. And he said... You want to hear the story? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I was going home late at night, three or four or five years ago, however far it was. And um, it was really foolish of me, but I went through a certain neighborhood where it's not a good idea to walk at night alone. He said, but I did. I was walking through this area, and suddenly a man jumped out of an alleyway, and he had a gun. And so he held me up in the alley, and he said, give me your money, give me your money. And he said, I looked at him, and I said, not only did he have a gun, but his eyes were really weird, and I could tell that he was very high on drugs. And I could also tell that he was high because he was holding the gun, and it was shaking, but he was pointing at me. And he said, give me your money, give me your money, give me your money. So I t certainly I took out my wallet, and I gave it to him. He took the wallet. And he put it in his back pocket, and then he took up the gun again. And he said, give me what you've got, give me what you've got, give me what you've got. And I just gave him the wallet, he said. But I looked down, and I saw I had a watch on. And so I gave him my watch. He took the watch, he put that in his pocket. And he said, give me your money, give me your money, give me your money. And he said, I, you know, I, I didn't have anything else. So he said, I looked at him. And I said, you know, that watch is a very good watch. It's 
It's a really very good watch. It's a very expensive, fine watch. And that money, it's got $600 in that wallet. That's $600 in cash in that wallet. Your friends are going to be very proud of what a good job you did tonight. You did great. Now go home. And he said the person turned around and left. That is a good story, isn't it? It's a good story. I haven't told that in at least a decade. He said the person turned around and left. So it makes tears in my eyes when I tell you that story because you have a person who's completely crazed and the, the phrase that gets through is, you did great. Your friend, doesn't it make you weepy? Your friends are going to be very proud of you. Not instead of anything bad. You did great. It's the universal thing that you could say to people that makes them feel good. You did great. Now go home. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> I think it's my husband's favorite story. Sometimes when I go someplace to teach and then afterwards he's wanting to go home and I'm hanging around, I'm talking to people who come by and they'll say in my ear, you did great, now go home. <laughs> but it's a really wonderful story about uh, what people get. But that business of... I said to him, how did you do that? Oh, I know. I said to him at that point, how did you do that? He said, I don't know. He said, but my mind was so focused. He said, my mind was so focused. There was nothing else in the world but him. There was no place that I could go. He said, and I suddenly, this week, when I was sitting, I got it that if I had been born as him, and he had been born as me, then he would be me, and I would be him, and I could have done that. And this week, it became okay. So that's what happens. It's not only that he got himself out of that experience, but three or five years later, however longer it was, this person gets moved from terrible ogre in the mind that he can't remember and have to keep locked up and have to have as the enemy to a desperately sick person that you met some years ago and then you are unburdened of it. So the, the, the idea of impartial goodwill, you don't have to like everybody in the world, but not to have ill will on people, that sets your personal mind free. And then you can remember that the world is full of a lot of things including people who are not well, but they're not the only thing in the world. I read this in Sunday's New York Times now. I really love this. It's it's a two-part story. Here you go. So this is in the Sunday Magazine section, if you still have the New York Times around. And this is Leon Wiesenthal, who's written a great deal. He's a really wonderful writer about a lot of very good things. Anyway, here it is. Some people turn to psychopharmacology when they are blue. I prefer Turner Classic Movies. (laughs) When disappointment has brought you low, or sadness has colonized you, or fear has conquered your imagination, you experience a contraction of your horizon. Isn't that true? That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful sentence. Fear, has, sadness has colonized you. You know, it does. Your sense of possibility is damaged and even abolished. I have the feeling that it swells up and fills up your head, the particular thing that's... The most urgent thing, therefore, is to restore a more various understanding of what life holds of its true abundance so that the bleakness in which you find yourself is not all you know. Mm -hmm. That there's a world out there. Pass this story. The way to break the grip of sorrow and dread is to introduce another claimant on consciousness, to crowd it out with other stimulations from the world. This next sentence is tremendously important. 
Sadness can never be retired completely because there's always a basis for reality in it. But you can impede its progress by diversifying your mind. Anybody who has had some loss, certainly even a major loss, My aunt and I, in getting dressed for my mother's funeral, her sister's funeral, when I was young, and she was still young, she, one of us said something funny, and we started to laugh. And we looked at each other. We're getting dressed to go to the funeral. The death was the day before. And we knew we had just laughed. And it didn't make the day any less sad. But I think I felt in myself, you know, there's, there's going to be a break in the clouds. There was a break in the clouds in that moment. So, nothing performs this charitable expansion of awareness more immediately for me than Turner Classic Movies. <laughs> movies are quick corrections for the fact that we exist in only one place at only one time. Of course, there are circumstances in which being in only one place at only one time is the definition of bliss, he says in parentheses. I switch on Turner Classic Movies and find a swift transit beyond the, beyond the confines of my position. Alongside my reality, there appears another reality, the world out there and not in here. One objective of melancholy <coughs> is to block the evidence of a more variegated ex existence. Isn't that interesting? That's what melancholy does. It blocks the entrance of a more variegated experience. I have some friends who are more chronically cheerful than other people. I actually think I'm, I'm pretty much of a borderline melancholic. I, I'm a cheerful melancholic, so people, <laughs> people are surprised. I was laughing with my aunt on that particular uncheerful experience, but I'm a cheerful melancholic, but I'm just on the edge. I tend to see this could right away be bad. <laughs> One objective of melancholy is to block the, block the evidence of a more variegated existence. But a film quickly removes the blockage. It sneaks past the feelings that act as walls. This is such a good sentence. He's such a good writer. The feelings that act as walls. You feel like this sadness, this sudden burst of anger have created a wall that separates me from the world, but they creep behind the world. I recall an evening when my mother was ill in bed and very fragile. The room was lit only by the flickering luminosities of black and white movie that Turner movie, Classic Movies was running. All of a sudden, my mother recognized and quickened to the sound of Eva Arden's voice. She gently smiled. It was a small cognitive resurrection. Never mind that I myself have little patience for Eve Arden and a compulsive wisecracking, her tedious insistence on the last word. The sound of that mundane voice restored my mother to the rich world in which there were Eve Arden movies. For a few moments, her memory successfully challenged the tyranny of her condition. The horizon was cinematically extended. She was, however inarticulately, delighted. Isn't that good? I, I really, I, I called somebody, I read it to somebody on the telephone. I was just so pleased with that idea. I turned on cl Turner Classic Movies last night <laughs> when I was putting this all together. And it was not only uh, an old black and white movie, but it was black and white and without talking. So every once in a while it had a line. And it was so fun. You could tell what was going on. They make such gestures, of, you know, you can see, you know, they, they over, it's like improv or, or uh, miming. So you really know what they're saying without them saying anything. And it's so well done that you really find yourself watching this long movie of dancing, tap dancing, you know, it was, it, and you feel picked up from it. It just comes into whatever you're doing. I was thinking about that. He said, instead of pharmacology. Um, also, you know what happens? I, I was going to say, when, um, when something, something takes over the mind, like, oh, I don't know, maybe some, maybe some sad thing, maybe not calamitous, 
uh, you're in the running for a really good job and you don't get it at the last minute. And it seems like the end of the world. And uh, how many people had that happen to them in their life? Happens to everybody. You know, I, I applied for a job as, um, as full-time faculty in the College of Marin teaching psychology in 1970, 72 maybe. 72, I know that because I didn't get the job. And I thought, <laughs> and I went back to, I, I, I didn't get the job. I, the woman who got it deserved it more. I was teaching for the College of Marin. I was teaching three psychology courses. I, you know, I have a license to, anyway, the woman who got it, was better prepared. She had a broader background in psychology, and she had a PhD. So I thought, oh, I have to get a PhD. My life is over without a PhD. <laughs> I went back to school, which was hard to do at 35. You have to find an alternative graduate school. I went back to graduate school, got the PhD. I no longer wanted a teaching position by that time. <laughs> and by that time, I was interested in meditation, and the rest is history. So you don't know, but it was one of the places in my life. And I was so disappointed. And years later, I met the woman who got that job. I told her that story, how disappointed I was. She said, oh, you're way better off. You're much better <laughs> off. Uh, you don't know. When, anyway, but we get disappointed. And to be able to say, you know, what's really important? You know, what, what do we really know is important? There was, oh, there was one other thing that I wanted to show you also out of... Sunday's paper, yesterday's paper maybe, Sunday's paper. The CEO of Aetna Insurance. Did you see the CEO of Aetna Insurance is on a, um, mm -hmm. on, a so, on a recent wintry afternoon, Mark Bertolini, the 58-year-old chief executive of Aetna, the health insurer, was sitting in his Hartford office wearing a dark suit and a crisp white French cuffed shirt. Instead of a necktie, he wore a shiny metal amulet engraved with the Sanskrit character Soham. Soham, roughly translated, means I am that. And repeating the phrase is used to help control breathing in meditation. Mr. Bertolini said the word also signifies a divine connection with the universe. He has a similar design tattooed on his back. In case there was any doubt, Mr. Bertolini, who own, runs one of America's 100 largest companies by revenue, wants it clear that he is a different sort of CEO. In recent years, following a near-death experience, Mr. Bertolini set about overhauling his own health regime regimen, as well as reshaping the culture of Aetna with a series of eyebrow-raising moves. He has offered free yoga and meditation classes. Da, da, da. I love this, you know. This could really make a difference. Free yoga and meditation classes to all of his employees. More than 13,000 workers have participated. He began selling the same classes to businessmen that contract with Aetna for their health insurance. And in January, after reading Capital in the 21st Century, the treatise on inequality by the French economist Thomas Piketty, Mr. Bernalini gave his lowest paid employees a 33% raise. Taken together, these moves have transformed the stodgy insurance company into one of the most progressive actors in corporate America. Okay. We program CEOs to be certain kinds of people, he said. We expect CEOs to be on message all the time. The grand experiment is to be how much of what do you really need to do. So there you go. Is that, you know, we already know that Google is giving, you know, presenting yoga classes and meditation classes to their employees, mindfulness classes to their employees on their on their company time so it's a you know I, I get do you feel hopeful about that I do we're going to work with our little I hope we're going to work with our little charts I want to tell you one more thing though because it's another story and it's important because it has to do huh I wonder 
I think I brought the wrong pile of stuff. No, no, uh, not the wrong pile of stuff. It's another version. It's a little more. Wait a minute. What does it say on the top of your piece of paper? Designing the qualities of the heart. Oh, good. <laughs> I have a prior one taken out of a more traditional textbook that says, uh, uh, this is a list of the paramitas, uh, the transcendent nature of the human heart. And mine are a little bit more traditionally worded. Thank you very much. Okay, great. So I'm, now I'm looking at the same one as you. Um, each of these, let's, I'll look at that one. Each of these, I made this chart uh, 10 years ago, Cynthia. I made it when I was writing uh, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, which is about the paramis. And I had taken this traditional chart about uh, uh, the, the 10 qualities of a perfected heart and made it into more um, contemporary language. But I wanted to point out that each of these is, well, you can see what it is. The, the practice of, these are the ten paramis, develops the habit of, how does that manifest? Like, uh, the habit of generosity means uh, the, um, the habit of relinquishing. When you're generous, it has to do with um, not only giving something away, but where the giving something away is... is uh, is an issue. Uh, somebody told me Punja when I, the teacher Punja in Italy, in India when I was there uh, with James Barras years ago, we were explaining what's the ethos of Spirit Rock, and James wanting to explain Donna was talking about that we teach generosity. And Punja said, "Well, you really have to teach generosity. Is not something that you give like even the Donna here." is not generosity because it's still, in a way, giving something for something. Generosity is just giving something just to give. And the feeling of generosity, which is another reason why I don't like the baskets, you know, that, well, now I said no more of that. No more. Don't do that. Okay. <laughs> uh, that generosity, he said, for instance, if you give away clothes that you don't wear anymore, that's not generosity. You don't wear them anymore, so it's no big deal. You know, I go through my closet, so I feel better giving them to the goodwill than just letting them hang in the closet. For years, I had a, a, a little sign on my refrigerator that said, the sweater that's hanging in your closet that you have not worn in two years is not yours. It belongs to the person in the street who doesn't have a sweater. And I, I, I really kept that there. I really, you know, I, I have that sentiment. I look at something and I say, this has been here for years and I don't wear it. It shouldn't be here. It should be on somebody who would be wearing it. So he said, if you give away, and there was a thought in your mind, if I, if I say, oh, you know, this doesn't fit me anymore, I'm too short, I'm too fat, or whatever it is, doesn't fit, I need to give it away. That's different from saying, oh, here's this thing, I wear it sometimes but not that much, and I kind of like it, but not that much. Where it's a little bit in the mind, and, and it goes, eh. You say, no, I'm really, where it's an act, you know? Uh, my experience has been, when I've done something like that, when someone says, I really love that, your whatever, and I see that they really do, and it's something I could relinquish. I gave a scarf once, or... I gave a shawl once, which I really liked. One of those shawls out there. But I have had a million times more pleasure about thinking about the person to whom I gave that shawl, who admired it, than I would have having the shawl. But I wear it two, three times a year. I don't need it. That person somewhere in Vancouver is wearing the shawl, and I'm very happy about it. I don't want it back. You know, it's, it's, it's worth much more to me there. So that's what they're talking about, the, the, the habit of relinquishing, which is not giving away old stuff. It's relinquishing something where it's an act. Uh, in the next one, which is uh, uh, morality in a regular list, uh, virtue in a more traditional list, 
the habit of moral inventory. Did I do the right thing? So I just want to say a little bit about that because in the, in, it's interesting, in the more traditional, in the more traditional chart that I changed from, it says, um, it, uh, uh, the habit of morality, uh, the proximal cause of it, what really makes you moral, is moral, sh mor moral shame and moral dread. That's a really bad <laughs> phrase, moral shame and moral dread. I know, I, you know, I, I sometimes do inept things, but I, I wouldn't like to think about having shame and dread. But, you know, actually, I, I thought about it today in a better, in a better way. I was, I was touched by the following. Now I'm going to tell you the story that ends up in this article. I talked on the phone yesterday uh, with a friend of mine who lives in the Midwest, uh, and that's the only identifier that I'm going to do. This person uh, is uh, the adult child of um, uh, Holocaust survivors, parents actually in camps during the Holocaust. This person's um, only child recently, uh, as part of a college course, was in Europe for a month, and on uh, the way home, he was in uh, Paris when the shooting happened at uh, the, the Charlie Hebdo offices last month. It was a very big upset that ran through the world with that kind of, I mean, the whole world got upset about it. And it was particularly upsetting also to, um, it was particularly upsetting to my friend. My friend said to me, you know, Something like this happens, such wanton, um, such wanton cruelty. It just revs up my whole nervous system. And he said, um, my friend said, I think that my nervous system really is permanently different. You know, uh, my friend also is a psychotherapist and a very good one and very sensitive to other people's needs. So anyway, part of the conversation yesterday was brought up because uh, he said, okay, he said, that uh, he said, I'm going to send you an article from Scientific American about um, the long-term effects of um, terrible events in people. And the point of this um, article, which is, um, the title of the article is Descendants of Holocaust Survivors have altered stress hormones. So it's different even to say if you grow up with fearful people, you learn from them because they are fearful. Um, but, whether you, but that your genetics could be changed. This is what the point of this. A, person, a person's experience as a child or teenager can have profound impact on their future children's lives. New work is showing this particular uh, researcher in the gr growing field of epigenetics and the intergenerational effects of trauma and our colleagues have long studied mass trauma survivors and their offspring. The latest results reveal that descendants of people who survived the Holocaust have different stress hormone profiles than their peers, perhaps predisposing them to anxiety disorders. Survivors of the Holocaust have altered levels of circulating stress hormones, this is another team found out, compared with other adults, Jewish adults of the same age. Survivors have lower levels of cortisol, a hormone that helps the body return to normal after trauma. Those who have had also suffered post-traumatic stress disorder have even lower levels. The whole point of this, without reading you all the cortisol levels, is I was really struck by how um, intergener intergenerationally, not only the culture that you live in, because I was about to say to my friend, you know, the, the young children that I know now who are growing up as Jews, the people that I'll see at the Purim play tonight, are now three or four generations away from that terrible 
generation, and they uh, they don't think it's odd to have a woman rabbi or woman rabbis. They don't think it's odd for girls to be running a service. Uh, their uh, their eyes and their their minds are acculturated differently, but their genes may not be. You know that they they may be more predisposed. Anyway, I had the thought that uh, when I first read the phrase moral shame and moral dread, I read that um, I, I read the classic uh, uh, definition of them, and uh, it's something like realizing the possibility in every action that you do that you might create suffering, which is really, you think, uh, and realizing the far-ranging effects in every di direction of every action, the rippling effects through the world through every action. I was thinking this is, um, this is part of 2,500 years ago, Buddhist psychology, and it sounds very, you know, sort of, maybe, uh, you know, how would they, the far-reaching effects of everything that you do. I remember reading that moral shame and moral dread that sounds so like, be terrified to live a life. Mm -hmm. But not terrified, but chastened. You know, that uh, how many people here remember something that hurt their feelings that somebody did in the last year? Oh. <laughs> in the last 10 years? In the last 30 years? <laughs> Something that hurt their feelings when they were between five and ten years old. You could you could remember that right now. You don't have to you don't have to ponder it. The the very long term effects of somebody says something nasty, not even nasty. I've met adults who don't sing in a group because they say when I was in the first grade, my teacher said. Don't sing Mountain the Words, you sing terribly. <laughs> Anybody here had that? You know, we learn that sort of stuff, and it makes a difference. And the people for whom it rolls off the, sometimes it, it just rolls off their mind. I think that if we were chastened about the far-reaching effects of everything, and really the effects that, that everything has, that everything makes a difference, the, the, the admonition to Rahula from the Buddha, I, I know this by heart, I don't have to say it, I don't have to look. It, it is said that the Buddha, do you know the Buddha had a son when he uh, went off to become um, a monk? And um, it says some people feel badly about that because and actually he's a, deserting father in today's terms. But then his wife and um, his son ordain, and they get completely liberated. But it's, he, there's a sermon called The uh, uh, Advice to Rahula. And uh, the advice is before or during or after doing or saying anything, you should consider if what you said or did is good for yourself as well as good for everyone else. And of course he goes on to say that you should not do or you should stop doing or you should apologize for having done anything harmful. <coughs> so these things sometimes, that would mean living such a staccato life. You know, you have to think before pass the salt, you know, is this a good <laughs> thing to... But I don't think so. I think you, take a, you, take, you make an intention. Kala Rinpoche said... Way up and all over the block today, and but uh, Kala Rinpoche, who died in 1995, so I must be remembering back till then, uh, did a um, bodhisattva um, initiation at uh, the Franklin Street Church, and I remember being there and taking that initiation. And he said, um, "Don't worry when you take this initiation." Uh, if you have another religion, I'm sure he said that. He said, because these are just good ideas. And he said, don't worry if uh, you're worried about the fact when you get an initiation from a Tibetan teacher, that becomes your guru, uh, and that you have to listen to everything that the guru says. 
He said, don't worry about that because I'm very old and I'm going to die right away. So, you know, you'll be released from your vow pretty soon. And don't worry, he said, if, don't worry that you'll make a mistake and break the vow. Because the vow is to make yourself available for all beings forever. He said, don't worry if you break the vow. He said, because you definitely will. He said, you definitely will break it. But having made it with intent in your heart, it will influence how you think and how you behave. And I think that's the big thing. It doesn't have to be shame and dread. But if you put that, like, in your... I guess the, the, the only example, that metaphor that comes to mind is if I... My husband's new, new Honda has a thing that if you back up and you're coming too close to somebody, it goes beep, 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 you know, lets you know that you're getting off the route that you should be on, not to bump into somebody. So imagine if we had that kind of beeper that was set up in us. I think we do, actually. And it's called a moral inventory machine. And when you sit down to meditate or you take a quiet moment, or sometime even before you sit down to meditate and take a quiet moment, your mind all of a sudden says, phooey, I shouldn't have said that. That was not a good idea. I hurt so-and-so's feelings. I could see it in her face when I said that. And then you feel terrible. You do feel terrible, don't you? You feel terrible. I, I say that you're completely sure that everybody here feels terrible because if you didn't, you wouldn't be here. And no, seriously, I mean that. Everybody here has, uh, resonates to the, the, the idea that peace of mind is a possibility and goodwill is the manifestation of peace of mind. And goodwill is the guarantee of um, a, a mind that's not afflicted, of a mind that has happiness in it. I was, hopefully, oh, I was going to give us a work to do with this. Does everybody have one of those handouts? No. 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 We're sharing. We're sharing. I'm going to pass out these other ones, which you can have as well. First of all, why don't you, and give these to the people who don't have it all to begin with, and then give other people too. So, uh, people who don't have, and bring them next week. We'll really, we'll work on them collaboratively. I'll tell you what to do as a homework. Read through them and see if I said to you next week, okay, Lynn, which paramita did you have a story to tell about? And that would that you could tell with bringing in the proximal cause and the habit, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, just one you have to do. Everybody picks out one parami, maybe one that you either have it comes to mind. I did this well, or I need to do it well. Anybody has a question about the homework? He needs a paper, somebody. But really, come with the homework. It's a good idea. So I was just going to say something, and then I interrupted myself with the homework. What was I going to say? Say the homework again. The homework, dear, is think about, pick out, like, for instance, here's an example of the homework. All right, this is the old one. It doesn't matter. Okay, here it is. I suppose I, so, so here's a story. I was in Vancouver teaching, and, uh, Oh, no, okay, the generosity story. I was in Vancouver teaching. I stayed with some people for a weekend. I felt very grateful for them. As I was leaving, I was putting on my dramatic red scarf with the beads on the end and throwing it on in that dramatic way. And my hostess said, that's a beautiful scarf. I love that. And I'd gotten it here, I suppose, or whatever. And I, I just knew I'm supposed to take this off. And I felt like giving it to her. And, you know, I really had enjoyed it, and I gave it to her. She said, no, not really, really. I said, no, really, and I'm really grateful. And I left, and I have not missed that scarf for one second, and it remains in my mind. I, if it suddenly came in the mail, I'd be unhappy. You know, I really <laughs> like it that the scarf is in Vancouver. Maybe she gave it to somebody else. But it was a moment in which I absolutely felt Complete generosity, and it was so much more pleasant, that feeling, than having the scarf. So, it, it, no question. So pick out one of these that you can tell a story about. 
I once had an experience of truthfulness where I did this and this because this was the proximal cause. And so it doesn't have to follow exactly that, but you get, you, you, do, you want, do you want to see, you want to take, a, uh, you want to have me assign which one or you want to do it? No. <laughs> you could do two. Try to do two so that if there's one that's left over and someone's never done it. All right. Okay, all right. I don't remember what the other one was about, but here's well, here's maybe one more thing to say. Um, all of them are permutations. Oh, here everybody can do the same homework. Okay, the first homework he got. Second homework is, I would like to suggest that all of those ten paramis are here. They are. All of these ten paramis are. None of them is compassion, right? And none of these is compassion either, manifests of. But I want to suggest that they are all manifestations of compassion. And I, and I could say, I think giving is and wisdom is and truthfulness is another manifestation of compassion. Look, like looking through truthfulness, I can see how being truthful is a compassionate act. I can see how being uh, generous is a compassionate act, and because it's da 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 da. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Because I actually think that all of these are permutations of each other, and we could do that too. So you got a lot of homework. Okay. What a pleasure. I'm having so fun. I'm so glad to be back for a few weeks at a time, and I can keep going. All right. Did you have a fun time? Okay. No, no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> we, are so, we are such heretics. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.